This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. In the opening pages of his book, A Primer for Forgetting, Lewis Hyde writes that we live in a culture that prizes memory. But as recent conversations about American historical memory have revealed, there are components of our history that has either been forgotten, hidden, or ignored. When it comes to local history and the story surrounding the construction of the Western North Carolina Railroad, a group of local historians, political leaders, and interested citizens are working to ensure that the African-American laborers who contributed to the construction of that railroad is not lost, hidden, or forgotten. Dr. Daniel Pierce, a historian and professor at UNC Asheville, is leading this effort and will join Marcus and I for another exploration into the subject of American memory. So, Marcus, here we are again, and I just want to say before we get started that it is always great to be back here with you and with our listeners again. And so we want to take the time to welcome our listeners here. We know that some are listening, will be listening via the radio, some are listening via podcast, and we're now kind of uh, have a, a little bit of the show that is on YouTube as well. So we want to mm-hmm. welcome those who are kind of catching it through you, YouTube as well. But it's great to be back here with you all again. Marcus, as I've said before, one of the things that I enjoy, not only the, the subjects that you and I have the opportunity to uh, kind to cover in the show, but I enjoy hearing back from the listeners mm-hmm. and hearing that they're getting so much out of the show. Just recently, I heard uh, from one listener who just said, you know, you guys are always bringing up something in the course of these conversations that forces me to kind of think about things a little bit different. And so I'm like, okay, that's the reason why we're doing the show anyway. So it seems like we're accomplished, accomplishing part of our mission. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, you know, it's always exciting to hear, to hear feedback. And, you know, one of the things that really comes to mind for me um, re- regarding what you just brought up, uh, brother, is that, um, you know, with, with each with each new show that we produce, I think that there are interesting ways in which uh, these these new shows sort of feed into previous shows that we've done <laughs> um, and in ways that, you know, just further galvanize interest in uh, the show itself, as well as particular episodes that we've done. Um, and so, again, you know, it's, it's always just energizing for me and um, and encouraging to, to receive this kind of feedback from our listenership. Yeah. You know, Marcus, you bringing up uh, the connection with other shows, I think, is really an, uh, an interesting thing for you to raise here because it makes me think about one of the recent shows that we did in a conversation with um, Sandra Washington and Clint Wilson, mm-hmm. you know, both doctors, both in the education field. Um, it was interesting because they raised some interesting um, points in that conversation that I did not anticipate coming up because we were really mm-hmm. talking about their experiences with uh, being fellows in the William C. Friday Fellowship. Mm-hmm. But they raised these issues about history as well. And Clinton talked about, you know, are we too trapped by legacies. And so this is something I think eventually that we'll have to come back to, but it is great. It's great for you to kind of make that connection. I could make connections to the shows that we did recently with Dr. Diane Stewart, looking at the issue of marriage in uh, among African-Americans. And it's going to be interesting to have a follow-up conversation with her at some point. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, one of the things that, that came up for me um, or that comes up for me in thinking about that that last show regarding the um, the Friday Fellowship and then the, and the two fellows that we have that we had on uh, is that uh, in this country, you know, we really have had and continue to have a very 
um, a very unsettled relationship with our own history. <laughs> and um, I think that 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 fact, that reality manifests itself in very um, interesting, surprising and, and problematic ways um, at, at unexpected times. And so I, I think, you know, again, un, until until we take the work of, of confronting, engaging and discussing our history more seriously and, to, and until we commit to that work um, on a broader scale, uh, I, I think that we will see this this fractured relationship. Be, I, I think that we'll see evidence of this, of this fractured relationship um, popping up um, here and there um, as reminders that, look, you know, we, we really need to deal with um, our history uh, squarely um, yeah. and soberly. I, I agree, Marcus. So as our listeners know, and as, as you're hearing again, this subject of American memory and historical memory is not a new subject for us. Mm -hmm. We've been discussing this for a while. You know, in the opening of this show, I talked about this book that I'm reading. Actually, this book was introduced to me by Dr. Meredith Doster, who has been a guest on the show a number of times, who's helping to lead the Friday Fellowship now. And the title of that book is called A Primer on Forgetting. And it's interesting in the early part of this book, uh, which, you know, Lewis Hyde, he, he's collecting kind of ideas from over time uh, from different cultures and how they deal with issues of memory and forgetting. And Marcus, it's been really interesting to engage that text because in some instances, there are some cultures that actually prize forgetting things more so than remembering and, mem and memory. And it seems like this whole idea of around memory and remembering ha is has is a clearly Western kind of connotation mm -hmm. because it's got political component. There's a political, mm -hmm. political components to memory. And that's something that you and I have talked about. So this subject of historical memory is not new is a topic that we've been discussing for a while. We've talked with people like David Blight about this. Mm -hmm. I mean, wonderful conversation that we had with David about this. So again, here we are talking about America, America and American historical memory. Yeah. And, you know, when, when I think about this notion of, of, of the nature of historical memory being selective and how, you know, different cultures handle memory differently and history differently, um, I, I think about the fact that, that, that human beings, and, and not to, to speak too generalistically, too generalistically here, but I think about the fact that, that human beings um, seem to construct the worlds that they live within um, uh, along the lines of forgetting certain things while remembering other things, mm -hmm. right? And what is forgotten and what is remembered uh, play a very large role in the sort of character, the content, and the nature of the worlds that are constructed, right, within different communities. And so I, I think that points us to, to, to the fact that the practice of forgetting Right. And the practice of remembering. These are both very political practices mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that have decisive consequences for the constructed worlds that we choose to live within mm -hmm. um, as 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 human beings that are connected to social institutions, social networks, social realities, social worlds. So uh, we cannot we cannot sever. I don't think we cannot sever the practices of forgetting and remembering right. from the practice of world construction, which is, which, which is what we do, I think, as human beings rather naturally. 
Right. So there's a yeah. process of there. There's a power that is involved in this process Absolutely. as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So you make me think about two other books, you know, which I will throw out for our readers. You know, we're always getting um, mm. email uh, from people asking, you know, can you remind me again of that book that you mentioned? So I'm glad to hear that people are out there wanting to kind of engage some mm. of these texts that you and I talk about from time to time. But not only is there th- this book that Meredith, uh, Dr. Doster, introduced on a primer um, for forgetting. There's also a book that I've I have been engaging off and on recently called um, "In Praise of Forgetting." Mm-hmm. It's, it's an interesting text uh, to kind of look at in the context of this whole idea of historical memory. And then, Marcus, you and I both have talked about this book, "Silencing the Past: oh, yeah. Power in the Production of History." How there is power that is involved in in this process, mm-hmm. right? Who gets remembered? Who does not? What stories are kind of uh, are given priority in memory, which stories are not, and what are the reasons why those things have happened. We've also tried to explore a little bit, Marcus, the, the whole idea from of memory from other cultures. We we have had conversations about that. Dr. Globe, Oliver Globe, we talked mm-hmm. to him about how France has remembered its past. You have from time to time addressed the issue of Africa, looking at uh, indigenous African cultures, how they have practiced this, this memory. If I'm remembering correctly here, I think Diane even addressed this from the standpoint of looking at her first book, which dealt with, you know, uh, looking at religious traditions coming out of places like Jamaica, mm-hmm. how how memory has been has been emphasized and prized in those cultures as well. Yeah. And, and thinking about memory um, and remembering and forgetting cross-culturally, um, thinking about my own work uh, within the uh, within the context of African traditions, uh, memory is uh, memory in, in indigenous African context. Memory is is always something that is informed by the ancestors, right? Mm-hmm. By relationship with the ancestors, by the by the lives of ancestors, um, by what it means to continue to live in the presence of the ancestors, um, in the presence of ancestral power. Um, and so, and so the, the, the notion of, of being engaged in the practices from an African perspective of forgetting and remembering um, in a way that does not centralize um, the ancestors is really nonsensical, mm-hmm. right? So because the ancestors place upon us a, an unrelenting burden right to to remember right mm-hmm. to remember uh their lives to remember um what their lives meant um to to remain aware of their ex- of the expectations that they place upon their living descendants and no, so right. um I, I don't know that that same burden obtains though uh once we cross the atlantic ocean <laughs> and <laughs> and enter the north american um context i think that i think that memory becomes um, something that uh, that we that we um, are are quite uncomfortable with, and mm-hmm. and there and there and there are some aspects of remembering, um, and of and of our own historical historical story that 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 we we seek to avoid. And in thinking of that, I'm reminded um, of a poem that Richard Wright wrote, um, in uh, I believe in the mid 1930s, and the title of it is "Between the World and Me," and this is. Uh, the title of, uh, as our listeners probably will know, of a book published in, t- in 2015 by Ty Nahisi Coates, which was written as a letter to his son. But mm-hmm. just to briefly read an excerpt from this from this poem by Richard Wright in, in, in 1935, he says, and one morning while in the woods, I stumbled suddenly upon the thing. And here he's talking about lynching. Mm-hmm. Um, stumbled upon it in a grassy clearing guarded by scaly oaks and elms. And this is the important piece here. And the sooty 
details of the scene rose, thrusting themselves between the world and me. And I would suggest that those, those city details, those dirty details um, comprise memory, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 what, and, and precisely what is uncomfortable and messy about the practice of, of remembering. We, in this country, we tend not to want to deal with the city details, as right as right would put it, right, the right. city details of the American historical experience. Right, um, right. And so, you know, we studiously, we tend to studiously avoid these, these, city, de- these city details, these dirty, de- these dirty details in the interest of other agenda. Right. And, and, and in the process of avoiding these city details, uh, the kinds of experiences that we privilege on this show, that we explore on this show, that we dig into on this show, uh, tend to get erased, mm-hmm. right, sidestepped um, or ignored altogether. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that poem, that Bright's poem encourages us to do, and one of the things certainly the Tana E.C. Coates' book um, uh, five years ago encourages, encourages us to do is to really dive into those city details the right, the right. Um, of the American story yeah. and really have honest conversations about them. And we we had a conversation with Kimberly Floyd about some of those seedy, those seedy de- uh, details about history because we were talking to, remember Marcus, that, that the 2019 Washington Post article about people visiting these plantation sites and not really wanting to confront this kind of history that the history of enslavement in these places. They they want more of a kind of a Disneyland experience there. But you're right. I'm trying today to, our listeners will know that I'm trying today to avoid Alexis de Tocqueville, but I can't help but bring <laughs> Alexis de Tocqueville up here because some of these things he does address. He addresses these in democracy in America. I was recently reading as well, Marcus, as we kind of move out of this segment and then dig deeper into this conversation with Dr. Pierce about this project that they're working on, which is essentially bringing up kind of that underside, more kind of a seedy part of of this experience. It does not fit comfortably in what people like Robert Penn Warren would say is that kind of triumphantless narrative of American history. There, There is a a triumphantless nature of the story about the completion of the Western North Carolina Railroad and it opening up the Western region of this state. However, the work to actually make that happen is a story that we don't always like to tell. But it's interesting in, in just reading recently uh, just uh, some interviews that um, that Ralph Ellison, uh, first uh, African-American to win the National Book Award for his, his book, uh, The Invisible Man, um, what he talks about, about American ideals, that he argues that these ideals are kind of standards that, that we've tried to grasp and work towards. But what he what's interesting about what he says there, that it has been the experiences of those who have been kind of marginalized, who have been brutalized by the American experiment in many ways who have helped continue to keep us focused and moving towards those those ideals. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting point that he raises. And I thought it, you know, it, it kind of connects with what you were just saying. And I think it will connect with this overall conversation that we want to have with Dr. Dan Pierce. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who are just joining us right now, you're listening to the Waters and Harvey show here at Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're again talking about American memory. We're going to be talking in just a few minutes with Dr. Dan Pierce 
professor of history at UNC Asheville. Many of you will know Dan. You've heard his voice on a number a number of times. He's well known in this community where he also grew up. But we're we're talking about a project that he is helping to lead here that is looking into the history and especially the history around the construction of the Western North Carolina Railroad. So thank you all for joining us. Thank you for being here with us. And Dan, we want to take the time to thank you for joining us today, to taking for taking time out of your your busy schedule. We know to kind of to jump in and have a conversation with Marcus and I today. Thank you, Darren and Marcus. It's it's great to be back and uh, uh, and looking forward to it. Well, great. You know, so Dan, I can't help but think about the last time that you and I and Marcus were in conversation together. You know, which is in a podcast. You know, those of you who are listening now and haven't heard that show, I, I would recommend going back and 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 listening to that show that we did with you, Dan, about your book Hazel Creek: The Life and Death of an Iconic Mountain Community. Uh, and this is a story that many people didn't know about. So it was like you were kind of uncovering, you know, a story that ca- has kind of been, in some ways, for many people, kind of forgotten. And so I just want to ask you, how did that book go? How was it? Um, you know, I know that you were probably out doing a bit of a tour uh, promoting that book. What was the response and how was it received? Well, I think pretty well. It was a finalist for the uh, Thomas Wolfe Literary Award. So I was, mm-hmm. I was very proud of that, particularly for a short little book like that. And mm-hmm. and uh, so it's it's been good. And and I, probably the biggest thing, I, I uh, um, one of the uh, leaders of the movement to kind of uh, but to build the the uh, North Shore Road, uh, which I was a little nervous about writing about that and all the controversy there. Uh, one of the book talks I gave uh, came up and gave me a hug afterwards. Oh, that, wow. 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 Advance, and so I appreciated that and Helen. So it, uh, it went well. Well, Dan, you know, being historian, you and I've talked about this before, you know, when I was coming through graduate school, especially when I began my graduate work at North Carolina State, you know, some of the conversations that I had with my professor there, Dr. James Crisp, and some of the things that he had uncovered in his research on Texas, especially surrounding the Alamo, the story there that kind of upsets the popular narrative around that, um, that people didn't respond to that well all the time. So I know that this is kind of one of those kind of those hazards of the profession in a way, right? I mean, especially, it's it, it gets a little nervous when you're writing about people who are still living. So. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> true. So one of the things, Dan, too, you know, and just a reminder to our listeners, I mean, you you are a very prolific writer. You know, you're you're producing stuff all the time. I mean, I um, I wish you could pass a little bit of that over to me so that I can actually finish up some more projects. But w- what's new? What I know that you recently published a book. Could you tell our audience about what you the title of that book and what do you have new that's coming out uh in the pipeline yeah so um uh, about a year ago i had a book come out called tar hill lightning uh and the subtitle is uh how uh, hidden steels and fast cars made north carolina the moonshine capital of the world and uh, uh and uh so it's it's about moonshine in north carolina which was always um I've said for a while that that we need a license tag in North Carolina that says first in moonshine. Right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but um, but one of the things just real quickly about that book that 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 I found fascinating and kind of this whole issue of hidden history and memory and things like that, you know, we have an image of of 
of who moonshiners were and, and, and where moonshiners made moonshine. Mm-hmm. And the fact in North Carolina, they made it all over the state. And the people making moonshine were not just uh, bearded, uh, overall uh, white guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, um, in fact, a significant portion of the illegal liquor made in, in this state and consumed in this state was uh, made by African-Americans and uh, particularly in the eastern part of the state. So, Dan, is anyone is anyone digging into that part of the story? And, and as you're telling this, I can't help but think about um, it, this new this new bourbon. That, and I know this is not the topic of our conversation, but I can't help but bring this up. This kind of new bourbon that is on the market called Uncle Nearest, who was supposed to be an who was an African-American. I think is a descendant of his who started this distill, distillery in Tennessee. They're producing this uh, this this bourbon now, but it's based on that. Um, what is it? The the recipe that was later used by Dak, by Jack Daniels, and I know some people have heard that part of the story. But is anyone digging into that history and writing about it? There, there is some, particularly in in those areas. Uh, Near Screen was the person that now Jack Dan- Daniels is uh, attributing the original recipe for what became Jack Daniels, mm-hmm. uh, and also several of the Kentucky. Bourbon producers have uh, acknowledged uh, the African-American contributions and presence as slaves in many cases. Mm-hmm. That was one of the fascinating things was to find uh, in North Carolina a lot of evidence of slave distilling. Uh, almost every plantation had a distillery. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, George okay. Washington had a huge distillery using slave labor. And mm-hmm. so, you know, so going from that, it was a natural thing once it became illegal after the Civil War. For African Americans who were struggling financially, anyway, to take advantage of this one sh- almost sure way of getting cash mm-hmm. that was making illegal liquor, and so African Americans were very much, of course, you know, the, uh, also it, it got taken over in many ways and became uh, more of a sharecropping type enterprise in the um, in the eastern part of the state. But mm-hmm. but you see, I, I mean, again, the, just the whole image of what moonshining was and, and who did it, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's something that there, there's a lot of hidden history. The role of women was huge in this in, in, at all levels of production, of transportation, of retailing. And uh, Native Americans in North Carolina were heavily involved in this, particularly the Lumbee. So it's a, it's a really fascinating story. And, I, and, I, um, and I'm hoping that there's going to be, you know, I've really encouraged through that book, uh, folks to really j- jump in, particularly in, with with women and African Americans and Native Americans, because there there's so much more research to be done there. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very much all, inter- all interesting. Yeah, definitely. And this, this just really reminds me again of a point that we that we made earlier, brother. How is having to do with how with the fact um, around how we how. Um, we go about the practice of remembering, you know, can have major consequences on um, what is rendered visible and what is rendered invisible, um, as, as, as is the case in, in the example that, um, that Dan just brought up involving the role of, of Native Americans, um, um, African-American slaves, et cetera, um, in the production of illegal liquor. Um, so, so, Dan, we mentioned earlier that uh, you're spearheading a major project involving the, the history of the uh, um, 
of the railroad here. And Thomas, Thomas Calder um, recently introduced the community um, in an article in the Mountain Express uh, to this project and particularly to the role of, of African-American men and women in the building of, of this railroad. Uh, could you say a bit about what prompted um, this effort, um, Dan, and, and why? Why is this important for us to, to be thinking about it at this point in, in time? Yeah, this is um, this is a very personal project for me. I, I actually live uh, at Ridgecrest um, mm-hmm. at the edge of the county, right at the McDowell County line. I live a half a mile away from the Swannanoa Tunnel that many folks may be familiar with. It's the, at one of the, if not longest, uh, the longest uh, tunnels, railroad tunnels uh, east of the Rockies. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I spend a lot of time. There's a great greenway down there called the Point Lookout Greenway. Mm-hmm. Spend a lot of time in that area walking and riding my bike down that area and then come up by a place called Andrews Geyser, uh, which is a man-made geyser that um, kind of memorializes the railroad or the uh, kind of the, the white um, honchos who um, spearheaded the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, knowing a little bit, going back to um, – Wilma Dykeman reading the French Broad and uh, John Ely uh, did uh, the West Asheville author. I, I always have to give props to my West Asheville people, uh, but I uh, wrote a book called The Road, which is about a fictionalized account of the building of the railroad up the mountain. Mm. And, uh, uh, and I really don't go to that area, and, and I'm there very frequently, uh, without thinking about the fact that that stretch of railroad, it's about nine miles of railroad uh, between Ridgecrest and Old Fort. Hmm. And uh, that, that whole railroad line is, is uh, a mass graveyard. And, uh, uh, and I think about that frequently and the, and the evidence of, of what uh, over 3,000, um, overwhelmingly, uh, over 90% uh, of, the, of the convicts who um, were incarcerated in the state penitentiary who were brought to work there were African-American. Hmm. And about um, what that was like, um, about the sacrifice, uh, well, one, that they accomplished what um, John Ager and I were talking the other day, and he said, you know, this is the, probably the most important infrastructure project in Western North Carolina history. Mm-hmm. You think about it. I mean, I, I think it's unquestionably uh, and who was responsible? James Wilson, you know, the uh, chief engineer, you know, has a monument down in Old Fort. Uh, but who did this? Oh, right. you, know, you think about that. And then you think not only about this amazing accomplishment, but this, the, the cost, the tragic consequences about the uh, inhumane treatment that these people experience, the mm-hmm. dangers that they experience day in, day out. And most importantly, I think about the the at least 139 we don't know for sure and probably many more but we have documented in the penitentiary records the deaths of 139 of these workers Mm -hmm. Uh, and they were buried in unmarked graves along the track so again this is a mass graveyard here so i i thought for a long time you know something needs to be done about this and then and then i you know when the whole black the uh the whole uh george floyd uh Thing in what May and June uh, got stirred up, and then and then I, you know it really got me to thinking about, um, and I think a lot of people thought about you know well, what can I do, uh, and sometimes we feel a little powerless, we're concerned, uh, 
but then you think about what can I do? And, and, and my philosophy on those things is you look for things that fit with your particular talents. Hmm. And you also look for things in your backyard. And hmm. so this, this fit that bill very well for me. So I, I was teaching summer school. And uh, when I got through, I, you know, I wasn't working, you know, uh, on a big book project or anything like that. And I thought I'm going to do something at this point. So I called up an old friend of mine who's happens to be the mayor of Marion. My name is Steve Little. And Steve um, has been fascinated by that stretch of railroad ever since he was nine years old and was a camper at Camp Ridgecrest for boys. And that's how I knew I got to know Steve through our connections, mutual connections to that boys camp, which is right at the, at the tunnel, basically. And so we sat on our por- on my porch and had breakfast on July 7th. And, uh, and we just started talking about it. We put together a committee at that point uh, which included, which includes Darren Waters okay. <laughs> and, uh, and a number of other folks. So we, we have 11 members of the committee. We, we, uh, try to balance out between McDowell County and Buncombe County. Um, you know, we, we obviously wanted African-Americans, uh, on that committee. Uh, one of the really interesting things, given the nature of this whole project, you know, related to, uh, to incarcerated people in the state penitentiary is that two of our committee members are um, African-American chiefs of police. So we have Melvin Lytle, who's the chief of police in Old Fort, and Eric Boyce, uh, who's the uh, UNCA campus chief of police. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Eric also has roots in McDowell County. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, you know, we move from there. And then Melvin, uh, Old Fort's kind of like Mayberry. So not only is he chief of police, but he's on the board of aldermen as well. <laughs> and so we decided to go um, to the board of aldermen at Old Fort with a proposal to put up a memorial to um, to these uh, convicts uh, who built the railroad and and sacrificed and and died in the process and uh, and were injured and uh, you know had life threatening illnesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And- and, and, and then just just following up on on that, I'm I'm thinking about the West North Carolina Railroad built, I believe, in the, in the mid 19th century. You just pointed out that this was perhaps the most important infrastructural project um, completed in in the history of this part of the of the state. Um, could could you say just a little bit? I'm th- I'm curious about two two things. One. How, how was it exactly that this particular history, this history of black, of, 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 of integral black involvement in the building of this railroad, um, largely by black convicts, convicts um, how did that history get sort of covered over and forgotten? And then secondly, um, kind of connected to that, uh, what, what has kind of been the response um, as you, as far as you can tell, to this, to this history being uncovered, and to the sort of central role of African Americans um, uh, in this history, what has been that the, the response to that, Dan? The well, the first thing you know, mm-hmm. how it uncovered? I, you know, a lot of it had to do with uh, the simple fact that these were people that just didn't count. Okay. <laughs> For anything, the other thing, part of it too, is that these were people. Um, these, these convicts who were brought were from primarily from the Eastern part of North Carolina. And so if they were released and a lot of these people, um, I need to talk um, uh, about 
how these people got arrested in the first place, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, because that's an important mm-hmm. part of the story. Uh, but um, yeah, because Dan, I heard you using the term incarcerated people rather than convicts here. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that suggests that um, that we're thinking about this group of people in kind of a different way. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry for interrupting, but I, yeah, I couldn't yeah. help but think about that. Yeah. yeah and, and I want to get to that point because it's really important. Um, but um, uh, yeah, again, these were people that that didn't count. In fact, the only memory of it basically were some joke postcards, uh, uh, pictures of these convicts in their striped striped uniforms, uh, standing next to the railroad tracks with their lunch pails and picks and shovels and stuff, and the caption that said uh, "stripes but no stars." And so it was kind of a joke, even, you know, people kind of knew. And then over time, just that whole memory was lost. I mean, one, because there weren't the people that did this labor weren't living in Western North Carolina for the most part. And again, it was kind of a joke. You know, they, they were just people that did not count. Mm-hmm. And so they were forgotten. As to the reaction, I've been um, uh, I've been really hardened. I, and I really expected, I mean, as many people know, McDowell County is a very conservative county. And, uh, you know, going to the Board of Aldermen in, in Old Fort, where there are, even though the chief of police is African-American, there aren't a lot of African-Americans in McDowell County period, or uh, and particularly in the um, western end of the county. I, you know, I thought we might have some resistance uh, to this. Uh, when we went to the Board of Aldermen, though, one of the things that just shocked Steve and I both uh, was just the enthusiastic reception of the Board of Aldermen there. Uh, and the mayor, who has who's very conservative, uh, someone made a comment at one point and said, we need to do this because, and I don't remember what the reason was that they gave, but the mayor responded, he jumped in, and he said, we need to do this because it's the right thing. And that... <laughs> Steve and I just looked at each other like at that point and said, what did he say? And so that's generally been the response. So, so we, you know, we've heard from people once we got our, um, we've gotten some excellent publicity from uh, Mountain Express, the Laurel of Asheville from WLOS, even a piece recently on Spectrum News, um, the charter uh, thing that goes out nationally, uh, I did a piece on it. And so we're hearing from people from all over, just got a, very nice donation from um, a, a couple in Cary uh, that had heard about it. And uh, so, um, so again, I, the response has been tremendous and, and, um, and, you know, we're very encouraged. I mean, John Ager uh, has really jumped on board with us and has been tremendously helpful. And so, um, you know, again, I, it, I've been surprised that we really haven't seen pushback and the response has been, this is the right thing to do. Right. Well, Dan, it, it occurs to me two things here uh, that this this is a story um, and this project is really a, a process of adding to the American historical narrative, uh, uncovering what, as we talked about in the earlier part of the show, what up to this point has been kind of covered over, hidden or, or just completely forgotten. 
so many of the other conversations that are going on around issues concerning American memory and narratives has been a process of taking away. We think about here in Asheville Advance Memorial conversation about the removing of that monument. We've had this happen across the state. Uh, you and I, in, in some way, have been involved in those conversations uh, about uh, the removal of Confederate monuments across the state of North Carolina and other parts of the South where this is going on. Um, how do you think this particular story of adding to the narrative might influence those larger conversations? Can it influence those larger conversations? And I'm also, I, I you know, I had an experience, you know, after I finished my own graduate school work uh, where, you know, for me, this stuff is just interesting. We as scholars and, and, and historians and whatever background we're coming, our fields we're coming from, you know, studying the past in some form of fashion is very interesting to us. Sometimes, with, and I forget that with the general public. And I was speaking to a group, um, in it, and this was a younger group of people uh, years ago, where I had been invited to talk about the issue of slavery. And there were only two African-American students in that group. And there was this look on their face of horror when I began talking about this as if it was not something that they really wanted me to talk about. And in fact, I, I was struck by the fact that after I gave that presentation, I had a number of people who came over and wanted to ask more questions, students who wanted to ask more questions and talk about it and engage in a further conversation. But these two particular African-Americans students, they left. Um, I had, didn't, wasn't able to engage with them. So sometimes the reaction of African-American community can be to some of these stories uh, kind of a, rather standoffish. Have you found that in this situation in the larger African-American community? And again, how do you think that this can influence these larger conversations that we're having around the narrative of American history in general? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I felt real strongly about was the fact that, you know, the conversation around memory has been so much about taking things down and, and that's important. I think, you know, there are things, you know, I mean, it, you know, it still bugs me when I drive on the interstate in Tennessee and I pass Nathan Bedford Forrest state park, you know, I think why, why would we honor him? Uh, but at the same time, I think, um, as important, if not more important to me, is that we acknowledge and memorialize those things um, that have been forgotten, that have been pushed underground, that have been ignored, uh, that are in incredible accomplishments. And I think, you know, from my experience, the response of African Americans once they learn about this, there is, I, you know, I can understand a little reticence here because, you know, we're talking about convicts here. And, and that's one reason we've avoided that term convict and, and mm. prefer incarcerated laborers because it, um, because, well, just to touch on this real quickly, this, these were people by and large who had done uh, little or nothing wrong. They had violated what some people call pig laws where, mm. uh, you know, it's a minor uh, uh, theft or vagrancy or something like that. And, uh, and, and anything that, you know, a white person would have been, you know, slapped on the wrist for, uh, they were sentenced to three years at hard labor. In fact, uh, on our website, we have a, uh, an article from the Asheville citizen that, um, um, I'll just read a, a little bit of it. It says on the line of the Western North Carolina railroad towards Asheville from the tunnel, three stockades are to be built for convicts and 700 are to be sent immediately. 
and and this is the key part here, the supply of convicts at the penitentiary is not sufficient. And word will be sent out to the prosecuting officers to bring before the courts a larger number of offenders. Mm-hmm. And so it's just kind of an order. Okay, go round up some people. We need more labor on this railroad. And again, you know, these, these were trumped up charges. You know, they were... Um, you know, they were going to be convicted, particularly if they didn't have white protectors. Uh, and so, so many of these people were just simply rounded up and, uh, and sent to the penitentiary and then from the penitentiary on to, um, to work on the railroad, you know, and, and incredibly, and, and for so many of these people, it was a death sentence. And so, um, you know, and so I think at first, you know, uh, African-Americans may look at that and say, do we really want to be associated with, you know, this kind of underbelly of society? But then once they realize, again, this whole thing, this is the most important infrastructure project. It was an amazing, uh, an amazing engineering feat to bring that railroad up the mountain. And the things that these people did were just incredible. And mm-hmm. it's something that we ought to, to memorialize once, partly because of the brutality of the whole thing, but, but also the accomplishment uh, that this incredibly important accomplishment that makes Western North Carolina. And that happened because of the work of these uh, African-Americans uh, who were who built that railroad. Right. Yeah, it, it was not yeah. acknowledged in, in, in any way. Yeah. yeah, and 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 then you know you 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 mentioned um, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, our uh, brother earlier. You mentioned the Vance Monument. We're talking about the West North Carolina Railroad, um, all of which I think um, are 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 connected to and in various ways reflective of conversations that have been going on. Very, I would say, conflictual conversations that have been going on over the, especially over the past four years or more. Um, around local, state, and national historical memory. And I'm, I'm wondering, Dan, uh, as, as a professionally trained historian who was working around these issues um, in various ways, um, it, it seems to me that you, that you really regard these conversations, um, difficult though they may be, as very, very important. Um, could you speak to, to why these conversations are important from your perspective as a historian? And then secondly, um, do you think it's possible to, um, especially given the current political climate in this country, um, to at some point in the future uh, kind of resolve these conversations or at least move in a direction um, that that is less tensive in terms of how these conversations tend to tend to unfold nationally, uh, nationally, locally, and also on the state level? Well, and, and, and I think an important thing, this is, uh, you know, this is uh, what happened in our little part of Western North Carolina is the tip of the, tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. nationally. I mean, you think even, you know, the construction of the White House was, you know, yeah, yeah. You know? And, and again, on and on and on, you know, you can talk about, um, you know, these things and, you know, that are so important. And, and one of the things I believe firmly, and I, I wish I had this quote handy in it, um, but they're just a wonderful quote that, that basically uh, we can't move forward until we essentially look backward and understand the context and what happened in the past. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, well, it's kind of like in a family, you know, where you have a deep rift and until, until you acknowledge the causes of that rift, you really can't have healing. And I think, um, 
you know, um, you know, we, I, I've, I've been a big believer for a long time that I don't know if we need a specific commission, but we need some truth and reconciliation in this country. And, you know, we need, and, 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 and the truth, uh, you know, will set you free in some ways. And I think we've got to tell the truth. And I, and I think, I've been very fortunate in the mentors uh, and colleagues I've had in the history profession and, you know, and, and, um, and, and there's always been that emphasis there that, you know, what, what we do as historians is to try to tell the full story Mm -hmm. uh, as painful as that may be, you know, and, and tell it in as factual and true a way as we possibly can. And again, I think, you know, if we're going to understand Western North Carolina, if we're going to understand our home here, if we're going to understand the history of Asheville and how it became what it became, we have to understand this part of the story. And, and, and in understanding that part of the story, we've got to understand and acknowledge the, this tragic story uh, and the sacrifice um, of, of these incarcerated laborers. And, and we owe, and the debt, mm-hmm. the debt that we owe, you know, and again, it's, it's yeah. surrounded that issue of reparations. Here. Right. Oh, yeah, Dan. There's you, a debt here. I mean, yeah. there's, and there's, no, and if you understand that, you know, mm-hmm. you, it, it really frames that whole issue in a very different light. Right. So, yeah. And so, Dan, I mean, and, and before we kind of go on just to for any audience members who are just joining us, we we want to just remind you to listen to the Waters and Harvey show. We're talking with Dr. Dan Pierce. We're talking about a project here in Western North Carolina, uh, the rail project um, that is looking at honoring the work and the labor of African-Americans who helped to construct the Western North Carolina rail, Railroad. Dan has already touched on how this is one of the most important infrastructure projects that took place in Western North Carolina. So we're talking about a really important piece of our history. And then as I was listening to you and in, in, in response to Marcus's questions and the points that he was making as well, there were two thoughts that kind of came to mind. I mentioned this book by Hen- uh, Lewis Hyde at the beginning of the show um, about a primer on forgetting and getting past the past, uh, which is the subtitle of that book. And one of the things that's raised in there of one of these ideas from another culture is that we can't really get past something until we really observe it and actually pay attention to it, that getting past it requires us to really dig in and to understand it and study it. And then once we're, we're done with it, we can move on. In many ways, I think that we as Americans have a problem with that. And then sometimes the way that we come at these at these topics, I am thinking here of a statement that I heard David Blight uh, make not too long ago in the conversations that are going on around some of these, the, the monuments nationally. And David's concern has been with uh, questions about the monument of, um, of Fred, that to uh, Frederick Douglass. Um, no, to uh, to Lincoln in Washington D.C. that shows him kind of standing over the kneeling uh, slave, and he he talks about even in his book how Frederick Douglass was the person who dedicated this monument. You know what should be done about that. But I heard David make the statement that we need to remember that the righteous present is not always right. And that has really kind of stuck with me as we as we think about these these ongoing conversations. Now, you also just brought up, Dan, this um, 
the issue of reparations. And I think it's an important topic. It's a heated topic. Um, I think a topic that is not going away anytime soon. We know what Asheville and Buncombe County has recently done on this issue of reparations, of passing these two resolutions, um, of, of saying that there will be a commitment to some form of reparations to the African-American communities in the county and in the city. So I'm wondering then how does this this uh, project influence that um, this this conversation around reparations, which, as Marcus talked about, the tensions around these conversations, will this heighten the tension around this conversation? Or does it have the potential to kind of, uh, you know, to kind of back us down from, uh, you know, kind of being on the edge and almost at each other's throats on, on this particular issue? Well, you know, I'll say that that, um, you know, digging into this story is and really thinking broader about the the broader implications and looking at this uh, nationally. And, um, you know, it really that that word debt, uh, you know, keeps coming back to me. And I think it's it's um, it's changed my thinking in uh, in some ways that 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 we and, and you look at this situation, I mean, here these people who were you who were unjustly incarcerated they were treated uh abysmally i mean they were they were ill-fed ill-housed you know those words of, of franklin roosevelt but you know they were uh they had little medical care they just uh thin clothing you know no winter coats or uh things like that just you know and they were out there six days a week, uh, in all weather, summer, winter, uh, at incredibly hard and dangerous labor. And again, many people died, uh, as, uh, as a result, you know, and, and they, they were not, they were not compensated at all, you know, and, uh, and again, they produced one of the most valuable things in the history of this, uh, of this region. Uh, and if that's not a debt, I don't, I don't know what is, you know, so there's a debt there. And again, that's, this is one project, uh, although, albeit a very important one, but, but, you know, it's just, again, a tip of the iceberg of, of that debt that this nation and, um, and this region, um, the city of Asheville, Buncombe County, you know, owes, um, uh, to, uh, to these people. Now, how, now how you repay that debt, I'll leave, uh, to others, but, but there's a debt there. And I think we have to acknowledge that. And I think we need to seek really good faith, uh, efforts to, to address this issue. Yeah, Dan, as you talk about um, debt and, and the whole issue of reparations, I'm just reminded of the fact that, you know, American wealth, um, you know, as, um, as as um as great as it, as it is as unique as it is um on in the sort of larger arc of, of world history is nonetheless um built on the foundation of black impoverishment i mean this has been the case since the since the country's founding and i'm just uh and with that in mind um and thinking about um conversations darren will remember this that we've had on the show previously about um, black wealthlessness and how that that condition was very much sort of um, engineered by um, by um, by the American experiment um, and thinking about this this rail project Dan um, and about this issue of debt reparations uh, what do you think is needed to really successfully complete 
this rail project um, to to a point that that would that would be satisfactory to you to the other folks who are on the the committee and I, and also and also uh, to to the folks in the broader community right who are now involved um, in this project. Well, yeah, the interesting thing with that, our goalposts keep moving. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we we started with a relatively simple thing goal, and that was to build a memorial in Andrews Geyser. And we have a vision for what that's going to look like. And uh, there's there's a uh, kind of a memorial there already. And we want to build one to match that. And we're going to use native stone and things like that. So that was our original vision. And then we started moving in other directions and say, well, another thing we want to do is, and I actually got an email yesterday from a guy pointing me to a site where he has heard that um, people were, uh, that, uh, these incarcerated people who died were buried. And so we want to try and find, and, and we're, we're learning as much as we can, and we're going to you know, try and, and locate some of these spots where people were incarcerated and uh, or not, or, or excuse me, where people were buried and mark those sites. Uh, and so that's kind of expanded. Then we thought, well, we also need to memorialize this in Buncombe County. And so we're looking at putting waysides up uh, at the top of the mountain there at, at Ridgecrest, uh, explaining the whole and talking about the Swannanoa Tunnel. There's been some incredible research by two Warren Wilson professors, um, Jeff Keith and Kevin Kerberg on the song Swannanoa Tunnel. It's a famous old time kind of bluegrass song, but they have discovered the origins of that song came from the railroad workers themselves as what they call a hammer song. And, uh, you know, that they used to time the strikes of the hammer as they're drilling into the sides of the mountain. It's just there's a wonderful uh, article in the Bitter Southerner that they wrote uh, back in the summer that I really highly recommend uh, about that. So we're looking at doing that. We're also making connections all the way down the line. I mean, I've, I've had communication with people in Jackson County who want to memorialize uh, a couple of tragic incidents in building the railroad out there. One, a ferry accident that killed uh, where 19 uh, incarcerated workers drowned and then explosion building the Cowie Tunnel uh, as well. And they want to memorialize that. So we're working with people like that. There's even been a very recent uh, proposal that perhaps instead of removing uh, the mass monument, that that monument be repurposed uh, in as a memorial uh, to the incarcerated laborers who built the railroad through Western North Carolina. I, that kind of brings a tear to mind to think about that that possibility, particularly because Vance was the big proponent of building the Western North Carolina Railroad. But to 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 turn that and I get and, and I would say redeem that monument, I think would be uh, um, a very powerful uh, kind of thing. I, and I understand why people want to take it down, but I, I think it's worth worth considering. So. So, again, the goalposts keep moving. We're in the process now of, um, you know, publicity letting people know about it and also raising money. Um, and that's, and that was my, going to be my next question, Dan, as we come down here to the end of the show. Um, I mean, it's such an interesting conversation and so much more that we could talk about, but I want to talk about um, how can people who are interested actually get involved? Is there a website? Uh, what can they do to kind of help with this effort? Yeah, I would encourage folks to go to our website, which is the rail project. 
dot org. And uh, one of my former students, Ashley Whittle, did a wonderful job with that. Uh, and uh, you can read, uh, see all kinds of information, including the primary sources from the state legislature, you know, about uh, this whole thing and newspaper articles about it. And again, that that piece that I read is is right up front on there and also links to uh, several articles and uh, news reports that have been done on the project. And then most importantly, you scroll down on that front page, there's a donate button and, and we would love to, uh, to, to have donations. We're about right now, we have about a $20,000 goal uh, to do everything we want to do right now. Although again, as I said, the goalposts keep moving. Uh, but um, uh, that would be a wonderful thing where, again, we're about halfway. Uh, we would love to be there. We have a very generous uh, uh, match, uh, matching gift challenge that the, um, that the uh, James McClure Foundation uh, through John Ager have issued uh, a $5,000 match for gifts uh, that come in by the end of the year. So, uh, you know, we would love for folks that want to participate. It's a great opportunity. It's the end of the year. Uh, and we would definitely welcome uh, welcome folks' help. And, and again, I've been so heartened, Marcus, uh, you know, by the response that we've had already. And um, uh, and just encourage folks to look at the, look at our website. You know, reach out to me. You can um, uh, reach out through the website or just uh, uh, through my email at dpierce at unca.edu, and be happy to talk with anyone about this project. Well, Dan, we want to thank you, Marcus, and I want to thank you for joining us and just uh, thank you for a very uh, rich conversation, interesting conversation. We need to have more conversations like this. There's more to kind of, Marcus, I, I see there's more to really dig at here. And I can't help but think as we kind of close out the show here that um, the, uh, the two questions that you and I have been asking, and Marcus, I've been seeing these questions in different forms uh, in so many different places. You know, I, I mentioned earlier, I've been rereading these interviews with uh, Ralph Ellison. Ellison was essentially asking the same question. So they're not original to us, but I think we should still uh, consider putting copyright on the questions. But they are, you know, who are we and who do we wish to be? And I think in many ways, this conversation with Dan really, really gets at those questions as well. Yeah. And I think I think along with that, I'm beginning to think as we as we, you know, talk about as we thought about um, today about remembering uh, the question of who are we as as a remembering people, as a people of memory. And I think about Dan's point about truth and reconciliation. And I think that 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 point sort of invites us to think about the practice of remembering as a practice of reconciliation, right? Mm -hmm. What would it mean to rethink memory along that line? So right. some food for thought. It is. So we're going to come back to this and we want to thank you again, all of you for joining us. Dan, Dan Pierce, we want to thank you for joining us as well. Thank you for spearheading this project. All who are involved with it, uh, we wish you great success with this. I'm glad to be involved with it as well. But as we close out the show, Marcus and I again want to remind you that the Waters and Harvest Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps and on, and on Apple Podcasts 
Podcast and Google Play. And you can also follow us on and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. You can also pick up the show again, see parts of the show, us doing the show live on YouTube. So Marcus and I, uh, thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having Dan Pierce here. We'll look forward to talking to you all in the next episode. Take care. <laughs>